Welcome to Season 3 of The Unforgiving 60 with your hosts, Ben Pronk and Tim Curtis. As two ex-SAS guys armed with MBAs, Ben and Tim seek out people leading lives less ordinary and talk with them about how they fill their unforgiving minutes and what helps them go always a little further. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome back to The Unforgiving 60. Welcome, Tim. G'day, Ben. Yes. <laughs> I got excited. I wasn't really thinking about this as an RV, but yeah. Got excited by the thought of doing an RV. Exactly. Um, this is a special RV. Mm-hmm. We're going to talk resilience. Enos. Yep. resilience Um We clearly have been doing a bit of work in that's this space. We've mm-hmm. written a book, which we're super excited about, due for release in... August, ultimately, early August, it should be on your favourite bookseller's shelves. Pre-sales in... May. May. Cover reveal, pre-sales. Yeah, there's a bit of a sequence building up to that. Cover reveal's cool. I didn't even know that was a thing until we got involved in this process, but mm. cover is a, a closely guarded secret at the moment. Yeah. We've seen it. Great operational security. Yeah. Looks cool. Yep. I like it. I We went through a few um, prototypes... Mm-hmm. I personally liked the one full-page picture of myself, but mm-hmm. that did not meet the requirements. I personally liked the full-page me in Copacabana in 1916 <laughs> when I was fit. But we've gone from much more um, reader-friendly version than <laughs> yeah. that. And, um, yeah, I, I think it strikes a nice balance between sort of, uh, you know, academic mm-hmm. sort of autobiographical vignette which, of course, is is kind of what the, the book is all about. Well, it's founded on a theory, and maybe we get to that in a little while, um, and we talk to our layers of the shield, which is our preferred iconography to describe resilience, mm-hmm. and we then break that down into some vignettes, into some science, into some um, you know research work from the land of academia, and talk about how people can improve their resilience. But in order to improve your resilience, you have to be able to assess it at the start. And this is a critical part of our resilience ecosystem, Ben. Yeah, it is. And um, for those who came in late, it's probably worth talking a bit about the journey towards uh, how we came to be interested in this. A lot of this um, initial uh, sort of interest in resilience came from our own personal experiences, um, seeing uh, workmates and colleagues going through some uh, incredibly traumatic, stressful events, um, everything from things like SA selection to the demands of training and ultimately uh, the rigours of combat in places like Afghanistan and Iraq. And it was anecdotally very interesting and, and maybe a bit peculiar to see ostensibly very similar individuals go through the same trauma events, same stress events, and come through with very different outcomes. Some would come through pretty much seemingly unaffected. Others would seem to benefit from it. They'd, they'd thrive in this sort of environment and learn and grow. And others, of course, would have a very negative outcome and, and in some cases, completely life-changing and life-destroying. Um, and this was brought into sharp focus, I think, uh, for me personally with my brother Dan, Dr. Dan Pronk, the average 70-kilo dickhead, who is a, a co-author in the book with Tim and I. Uh, his own experiences of post-traumatic stress uh, following some some pretty confronting um episodes in Afghanistan. And so we got to thinking, well, what is this thing about resilience? Um, clearly, it's not just about 
toughness. We're all pretty tough. Mm-hmm. We're all physically fit. We had some level of mental sort of resilience to get through the training. It needed to be about more than that. And so we focused our efforts on a research body in terms of trying to do a, a, a literature review on uh, the various components of resilience to try and build a global model, a model that could describe to us what overall resilience was built of, um, which we did. And, and as Tim mentioned, we call it the resilience shield. We refer to interwoven layers within the shield, and there's six of them. We talk about an innate layer, kind of nature and nurture personality values. We talk about a mind layer, so your mindset and what's going on between your ears. Mm-hmm. We talk about a body layer, sleep, diet, exercise, um, and we talk then about uh, some of the more um, external layers, so things like our social layer, which is the support of people primarily outside of a work environment, and then the professional layer. What are we doing between nine to five, metaphorically, um, and how does that contribute to our well-being? The final layer we talk about is adaptation, which is kind of a bonus layer that we figure um, if you've got your house in order in the, the previous layers, then you're going to be in a position where you can adapt to novel challenges. The the so-called zombie apocalypse comes that no one saw coming, the black swan. Um, you're going to be able to, to um, adapt and uh, demonstrate resilience throughout that. Mm. And it's not a story of, um, you know, our service and a few has-been SAS guys you know, we did it this way, we're resilient, therefore you should be. We actually take the stories of people from whole heaps of walks of life, uh, those that have suffered a not just mental illness but physical illness, from brain cancer mm. through to things being removed from their life, Olympic athletes who were preparing for their big show and that was taken away through to people who have done things that they had never previously done before. And without perhaps compromising some of those stories. Suffice to say, it is this interwoven um, series of vignettes that is supported by academic research. More on that in a second. Um, In a very readable style and importantly, yep, it's probably a self-help book um, that will enable you to understand this thing called resilience that in some ways is underdefined, in other ways is overdefined and work out what's the missing part in my life. I mean, how am I vulnerable and what are the sorts of things that I could do? Importantly, we don't profess to be the only experts in the subject. We recognise that there are others that you can lean on to improve your resilience that are inside your social network, but other professionals that can support building some strength to your shield. Yeah, and so I think one thing that was really important to us throughout is that it wasn't just a collection of observational anecdotes. Um, there's certainly plenty of those, and, and that demonstrates how we got interested in and our own personal experience with various facets of resilience. But it was critical to us that we we had the science behind it. Part of that was that literature review where we looked at what work had been done on resilience, and part of it's our own body of work, um, a body of research with the University of Western Australia, which we're conducting uh, under the auspices of a federal government innovation grant, which has been fantastic. And that's anchored on um, the the thing that Tim mentioned before, this benchmarking um, uh, activity that we're calling the Resilience Survey. Um, we, as I mentioned, have developed this model and we want to prove it. We want to stress test it. And so we have collated a number of peer-reviewed screens that 
um, test for the various components of our resilience shield model. Things like your personality, your values, things like your sleep, diet and exercise, your growth mindset, your um, uh, occupational self-efficacy, your social support networks. What we wanted to do was to be able to collect data on those and look at how they interrelate and how they contribute to overall resilience. So the idea with the resilience survey is that it provides you as a participant with feedback on your relative strengths and weaknesses Mm. in the the different facets of resilience according to our model. But importantly for us from a research perspective, it also provides us with data that we're currently in the process of interrogating to work out what is really moving the needle on resilience. It's free and it's confidential and you can do it anonymously and get your overall resilience score that will position you on a bell curve. Um, but if you opt in and provide your email, you'll have your layers broken out in a HTML mailout that will show you against each of the layers that Ben described before how you sit also on the bell curve, um, which has been fascinating in itself and we might tell a little um, anecdote in a while. Dr. Lise Notabart, uh, herself a psychologist at the University of Western Australia, is combing through now thousands of survey results mm. to work out what are the more important parts that contribute to a resilient person and maybe what are the less important parts. And she's supported by a research assistant. And, you know, we've kind of thrown the gauntlet down and said, Dis- disprove the theory. Mm. And against the, the core layers outside of a Nate, perhaps, Ben, the initial indication that she's giving us is that body, mind, social, professional contribute basically evenly to our overall resilience. Yeah, that has been interesting. Um, as Tim mentioned, we, we're challenging Lise to break our model um, because it's it's not about us just saying this is what we reckon and therefore this is what you should do. It's really important that we evolve this model um, uh, to represent as accurately a, a, a depiction of resilience as possible. And we set off by giving equal weighting to each of the layers. That's the start point in our, in our current statistic model. Um, and as Lisa's is looking at their contribution, the various layers' contribution to overall resilience, she's finding that's about right, mm. which is – I I didn't think we'd be right. <laughs> <laughs> well, we knew we couldn't be wrong because we're not saying that they're, they're weighted. <laughs> but, yeah. 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 But it, that's, that is fascinating. And some of the little snippets that she's given us – and we commit to you that we will have her on an upcoming episode where mm. – she can talk her theory on resilience, which we've incorporated into the book. And it's awesome. She's far more learned than us exactly. um, in, in this from a psychological perspective. But also what she what is she finding out of these uh, survey respondents? And, and they, being University of Western Australia, have been overwhelmed by the number of respondents we've had through the survey. Um, and you can find the link on our Instagram page inside our sort of bio notes um, or go to www.org resilientshield.com and you'll be able to click through to the survey that way. In any 
everyone's given day, there's only a finite amount of time we can, can contribute to, to these sort of things. So where are we going to get our, the most bang for our buck? And if we can look at the things that are moving the needle the most, then maybe that's where generally we should be devoting our effort. But the other interesting thing we're doing is um, also collecting a lot of demographic information. And our dream is to, to have a data set where we can do some regression analysis and look at um, you know, predictive modelling that, you know, we know statistically that a 45-year-old male living in Perth should be watching out for these things or should invest in uh, his social layer more or should spend less time at work or whatever. Um, we're interested if the, the statistics are going to, to sort of back up some of the things that maybe we intuitively suspect. I'm really interested in the current picture too is a country girl who doesn't necessarily have a social network because she's living on a farm hundreds of kilometres away from her real friends. Uh, is her resilience any worse or better than the city girl who's mm. closer to all of her family networks and probably has a range of professions that they transition through in the core part of their professional life? I'm fascinated by that. And not to mention interstate, international. I got an excellent question in a workshop last week about culture. And uh, I've made a note that we will get a expert on resilience and culture onto the show. There's an exceptional lady who that is her portfolio of work. Mm. And um, there are some nationalities who don't have the word resilience inside their language because, well, I'm kind of curious to examine why, mm. but is education, is being uh, you know, uh, resilient in your professional life important if indeed you live in a remote community and it's subsistence farming, but you live with your family and the rest of your village. So, yeah, I'm really curious about that. Yeah, no, so some, um, I think some fairly interesting statistical stuff to come downrange. Every time I have a conversation with Lisa, I have these awful flashbacks to my statistics course during my MBA, which I struggled through. It's still just words and funny numbers and bell curves, but Lisa's making sense of all of that for you're, us. You're good at it. I stay out of it. I, every time I see an email from Lisa, I give it one cursory scan and leave it to you, I think. Um, but the importance of some stress in our life, that is, I guess, the core foundation of how we can build this thing called resilience. How do we inoculate against stress and a recognition by two academics, Yerkes and Dodson, who created a law on stress. Yeah, and I think a big part of the book, um, certainly the first half of the book is devoted, or first couple of chapters devoted to understanding these concepts of stress and resilience and making sense of the world. And I think actually that goes a long way. I think uh, the power of the mind layer is all about the lens through which we look at the world and the more educated we are about it, um, then the less sort of confronting it can seem in a lot of ways. I've just finished listening to Green Lights, the Matthew McConaughey autobiography, and it's a—it's actually a great read uh, or listen. But he talks about uh, a quote, something like, um, "You know, uh, darkness or, or black is is less dark once you understand it's just black or something." So you know, the the empowering nature of having an understanding of something that's ostensibly confronting is is really interesting. But um, yeah, the Yerkes Dodson um, is central to this idea of resilience. The definitions of resilience are still actually debated as to whether it's something you have before a stress event or something you develop in response to a stress event. But what the literature does agree on is the fact that you need stress to demonstrate resilience. It's almost self-defining. And Yerkes Dodson have um, 
their law uh, depicts a, an inverted U, that there is a sweet spot for stress. If we're understressed, any organism is understressed, it doesn't perform, it doesn't grow. Um, but if we're overstressed, clearly, um, uh, then we end up with um, the potential for, for chronic or acute injury. And so we want to hit that sweet spot of stress. And we've spoken about flow before as well. Chick sent me high's concept mm-hmm. of being in the moment and, and sort of experiencing that, that flow state. And that is very contingent on having an appropriately pitched level of challenge. You know, if something's too easy, you're not going to hit flow state because you're doing it in your sleep. If something's too hard, you're likely to hit anxiety. But if it's just that right level of difficulty, you can do these amazing things. And and, uh, I think Jörg Dodson talks to that. We've talked a lot on our podcast about the topic of complexity. We've had David Snowden on giving us his rundown of the Kinevin framework. And I'm trying to make myself look smarter by reading Neil deGrasse Tyson's Astrophysics for People in a Hurry. And his opening quote is, the universe is under no obligation to make sense to you. (laughs) And that's something we also cover in the book, that the world isn't fair. Yeah, exactly. We we talk, I mean... As anyone who has had a cursory listen to this podcast will know, I'm a massive fan of Stoicism as a philosophy and and that idea that no one knows you're living, uh, it's not supposed to be fair, bad things can happen to good people, the universe is under no obligation to explain itself. I think these are pretty empowering philosophies to have at the the back of your head, um, if nothing else, and to make sense of of the craziness that can, can be going on around us. So understanding a couple of those core themes, that we need some stress, that stress and resilience exist on these scales, that there's a perception bubble over stress. Yeah, that we can make it worse or better depending on how we interpret and filter it. And the other one, which I think you sort of led on um, in terms of this inclusion and a lot of the work, but is this idea of happiness, Tim. Mm -hmm. Well, we believe that there is no happiness without struggle. We've talked about that extensively on the podcast, but more important, this ancient word called eudaimonia, Mm. which broadly translates to flourishing, not about being happy because you can be more happy, less happy, but when were you, ask yourself this question, when were you last, quote, flourishing, unquote? It's it's funny you say that because I reckon I'm experiencing that right at this moment. There's a lot going on and, uh, you know, you could at a surface level say that there are stressors, you oh, know, definitely. there's deadlines and there's all that sort of stuff. But I, I do feel we're, maybe I'm kidding myself, but I feel we're flourishing it. I, I feel um, that this stress, you know, maybe just tipping the top of the Yerkes dodson scale at times, but is towards something meaningful, something purposeful. And I, I yeah, I, I do feel quite eudaimonic. Is that mm. the adjective? Hmm, I'm not sure. You're demonic. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so, fun. you know, in order to be an, the, the most optimised version of ourselves, we need that little bit of stress. And um, we talked about the survey, go do the survey, because once you understand where you are on that bell curve, now footnote, it is quite confronting for some mm. people, then you can identify where your vulnerabilities are and importantly build your resilience action plan which are the little things that you're going to do, the goals and the tasks to achieve those goals each month in order to move the needle on your resilience action plan? And can you be over-invested in one element of your resilience shield? Yeah, definitely. And and we talk to that and the shield uh, model allows for that. There are going to be times where we need to bias towards a particular level, perhaps where 
training for an Ironman triathlon. We are going to have to bias towards our body layer. Perhaps we've got a sick member of the family. Maybe we're biasing towards our social layer. Perhaps we've got a big, crunchy project at work. We're going to be biasing towards our professional layer. This is fine. This is something we all need to do. And we it was important for our model that it was dynamic, multifactorial, and modifiable. So that dynamic bit means that it can accept these surges that, that life puts onto us. But the important thing we're trying to highlight is that if we're not aware of these biases, that we are um, imbalanced, then we can end up going a long time without investing in things like our social layer. And the classic uh, for a lot of people is that overemphasis in the professional at the expense of the social. Mm. Um, spoiler alert, your job will not love you back. Once you cease being useful to that vocation, the, the machine's going to spit you out. And um, a lot of people, certainly in the military side of things, who have really gone above and beyond uh, in terms of their commitment to the army, in our experience, um, they they stand to, to have a big fall if they get spat out of the army through injury or whatever, and, and they haven't got that social network, the other interests, um, and that investment in themselves. recently where we were looking at the results of funds managers and how they um, sat on the bell curve and to pick but one example one individual and this was quite common uh, he was in the 85th percentile for his professional layer you know he was completely dedicated to his work loved being at work got fulfillment from it uh, in his mid-30s married with a young child under the age of one but down at the other end of the scale he was in the 12th percentile for his mind and the 13th percentile for his body. Now, if he was to fast forward 15 to 20 years, retaining those positions on the bell curve, he could experience some real issues. Yeah, and, and I think that's a really good example of where I think there's going to be some insights from this survey and the wider research. Bear in mind, with the mind, we're not measuring intelligence. This guy's <laughs> smartest man in the room. Mm -hmm. um, so it's it's not about that. It is more about that uh, concepts like mindfulness, like flourishing, uh, like growth mindset. We, we draw um, with permission um, from Carol Dweck on her survey and research in growth mindset. So it's, it's those sort of aspects um, that you can still be an extremely high performer as, as these individuals are um, and yet have deficits in some of those aspects that we think will have a negative correlation with resilience. Mm. Yeah, on that mind layer, um, remember the old days of the test pattern? Yes. Where the television ended at a period of time and I think that's an interesting way to think about our lives. The television never goes off. We're 24-7. You know, this globalisation in our business, we're constantly bombarded with not just news but feeds from social media, we're force-fed those things. So when are, we, when are we able to, in our mind layer, click the test pattern on to mm. flush the nonsense out? 
and the, the man the the answer for me is meditation mm. breathing and meditation is such a i wish <laughs> i wish i'd sort of um been aware of this much earlier as i'm sure that's a, a oft quoted sort of lament but um yeah it's been magic for me um in the last few years having gotten into that and yeah it's a circuit breaker and it's funny um how uh, sort of persistent that that kind of peacefulness can be you know it can extend well beyond your formal meditation session and i've found as i've um gotten more practiced and and doing meditation a little uh more and more consistently that you're able to much qu- more quickly get into that that sort of peaceful state so you can do what i think you refer to tim as tactical meditations mm-hmm. quick sort of little uh, recharges resets and and sort of reap some of those benefits Really good episode that we did last year with Gary Goro that yeah. introduced us to meditation, certainly introduced me to the concept. I think I always practiced mindfulness but never really meditated. Mm. Um, you use the Wim Hof method and there's some great ways to get into being mindful or meditate through guided meditations that mostly focus on breathing yeah. and body position and sensations. And you get some good results out of the Wim Hof I, I love it. I, I my practice if you call it that is um, a combination of Wim Hof and then mindfulness meditation and I find that the Wim Hof breathing um, the the concept behind it if you if you haven't or if you're not familiar Wim Hof is a Dutch endurance athlete a pretty amazing backstory pretty charismatic sort of guy mm. um, but he's all about um, a sort of modern version of a thing called tumo breathing which is in a warming through through the breath um, and so he's got a uh, breathing technique which involves deliberate hyperventilation and it's designed to activate your parasympathetic nervous system. It's deliberately triggering your flight or flight sort of response by tricking your body into thinking you're panicked. But the view of doing that in a controlled sense is that it tends to inoculate you from an overreaction when you experience that in the, the normal life. And so it is a combination of, of kind of stressing your body um, but then using breath control to, to very much uh, get into a, a relaxed state. I, I find it incredibly powerful. I find it incredibly relaxing and a wonderful way of setting myself up to then do mindful, uh, mindfulness meditation. The mind layer is our first core layer beyond uh, the innate layer. And if we don't have this, we're not going to be doing too well in the next layer, which is body, yeah. sleep, diet, exercise. You don't have motivation to jump out of bed and put your runners on or improve tighten up your diet nutrition then you're not going to go so well and i'm a believer as you know that if you haven't mastered your mind then that's probably causal to bad sleep patterns yeah and i think some of these um really landmark examples of resilience from history um reinforce the benefit that just the mind layer by itself can have i'm thinking of people like nelson mandela 27 years incarceration in south africa um uh James Bond Stocktail, um, an American fighter pilot shot down over North Vietnam, spent four years in the Hanoi Hilton. Um, He's a big stoic, but both of those individuals, I mean, they weren't getting a lot of (laughs) regular sleep, diet and exercise. I imagine their social interactions were probably limited um, and bad and certainly no professional layer in that context. But the the strength of the mind uh, and their ability to endure and come out of it in such a positive space uh, I think is testimony to the mind layer. And the two are linked, aren't they? Mind and body, we probably can't separate that. We talk in the book about some SAS selection stories where you know, the really fit 
guys are gone on day four. It's the tough guys that endure and it becomes less and less about your body layer and more about the mind layer. Mm. And what about the social layer, Tim? Um, this is probably an area that this, well, this is definitely an area that this survey says my tide's out a bit in. Um, but I've always looked at you as someone who, who has got a strong social layer. Importance of the social layer. Well, again, science says yes. Uh, science says that if you don't have this network of friends and family, of confidants, what uh, Napoleon Hill calls your mastermind group that you're able to lean upon and them upon you, then you will your resilience will be degraded. We talk in the book about loneliness and solitude. We give some vignettes about modern day sport and the importance even in older people of being part of a team. But we also talk about how this social layer can play into your professional life. Uh, are your workmates an important part of the social layer? And how can you disconnect from professional work-related discussions and be more socially minded? Mm. And even how can you sort of physically disconnect from your, your work life to, to be able to be more present when you are with your loved ones? And, geez, I've, I've been guilty of this in the past, sort of bringing my work home you know, sitting there with my daughter at, mm-hmm. at the, the dinner table and her literally saying, you know, you're, you're not here, are you, um, in terms of your mind being elsewhere. And um, that's no good for your social layer. Yeah, being present is a key theme through this layer, both in reading body language, so understanding the dynamics of what the person next to you, opposite you, is not saying, picking up on those cues but also practicing active listening so that you're proving to them that you are here and present and nearly proving to yourself that you're tuned in to the conversation that you're having right now and not being distracted. So it's, a, it's about proving to yourself that you, you're tuned into the conversation you're having right now. It is very much about tuning yeah. into the conversation you're having listening right now. <laughs> <laughs> Um, And then into the professional layer where we talk about focus, we talk about dealing with that dickhead boss. Mm. How do we treat those? How do you deal with your dickhead boss? (laughs) (laughs) I'm never filling out a leave application, that's for sure. Suffice to say, I'm the most insubordinate person in our organisation. I don't believe in hierarchy. (laughs) But yeah, so how to get focus and how to keep focus and attention and how to diagnose your own professional competence. Yeah, and also this concept of virtuosity. Um, we talk about finding purpose. Um, we want to find work with purpose. That's the, the sort of holy grail. Um, however, we also uh, acknowledge that that can't always be the case. We can't just drop everything and, and go and start that surf school in the you know, outer islands of Indonesia. Mm-hmm. Um, what we may have to do is find purpose in our work and this concept of virtuosity, doing the common uncommonly well as a habit uh, within the professional context that, that obviously spills out into all facets of our life. And the bonus layer being adaptation. If you've got a strong resilient shield, if all of those things are woven tightly together, then perhaps you will do things that you never thought you'd be able to do. Yeah, and um, we start the book by talking a little bit about complexity and the fact that you can't predict the future, and the adaptation's a nice way to bookend it because it's saying if we can't predict the future, then we need to be able to adapt our skill sets that we've developed for known tasks to be able to meet the demands of novel challenges. And so this adaptation layer is all about that. We talk a little bit about what adaptation means to Australian Special Operations Command, 
they they work off th- or uh, work off three tenets of flexibility, agility, and and um, adaptation. And so we talk a little bit about what they all mean in that context, and then clearly relate it back to what it means from a resilience perspective. And to steal a line from Robert Heinlein, the sci-fi author, specialization is for insects. Is that true? in this thing called resilience. Yeah, I really think it is. And and to round back to your point about surging to, to meet sort of certain challenges or biasing towards certain layers, um, we acknowledge that that's necessary sometimes, it's preferable sometimes, but if we do it too long, if, if we're just a professional layer specialist, I think we do that uh, at the detriment of our overall resilience. Yeah, looking forward to this book hitting the shelves and exploring in more detail the topic of resilience. Looking forward also to what Dr. Lise Notabart and UWA yeah. find out about the model and how we can just make these little incremental improvements in community resilience. If Lise comes back and says the model just doesn't work, <laughs> do we do we pull the book? I'm hoping she says sleep more and eat burgers. <laughs> That'd be fantastic. Don't work. Yeah. Sleep more, eat burgers. Yeah, I don't know if that's what we're going to get. Either way, it'll be fascinating, and um, we look forward to, to speaking further about this in the, the lead-up to the, the book's launch. See you later.
now to the debrief. We try to go always a little further in this podcast and greatly appreciate your input. Please let us know your feedback, the good, the bad, or the ugly. Also, if you know someone who is living a life less ordinary, we'd love to hear about them. You can get in touch at debrief at unforgiving60.com. That's debrief at unforgiving60.com. If you have enjoyed this podcast, please tell your friends and write a review for us on Apple Podcasts. Until next episode, keep filling your unforgiving minutes with 60 seconds worth of distance run. See you next time on The Unforgiving 60. Beijo